0: Do not count a human dead until you've seen his body, and even then, you can make a mistake.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Frank Herbert's Dune. This is season seven, episode seven, The Water of Life, covering book two, Mahadib, chapters 12 to 16. The hosts have varying levels of knowledge of this book in this series. My name is Dan, and I've only read up to this point.
2: My name is Talia. I have read all of the Dune books a long time ago, and I'm rereading along with the podcast. Additionally, I've seen the 2000 miniseries and the 2021 movie.
0: My name is Priya, and I've only read up to this point, and I've also seen the 2021 film.
1: Unfortunately, Ami is not able to join us today, but he will be back for next episode. Yeah, so let's jump into the characters for this section. So we have uh, Getty Prime, which is the Harkonnen homeworld. Count Fenring, an advisor to the Padish Emperor, whom the baron notes seldom held himself to a single meeting in a single phrase. He and his wife have a secret humming language between them. Lady Fenring, Count Fenring's Bene Gesserit wife, who left a coded note for Jessica to find when she first arrived in Arrakis. The old Duke Atreides, the late Duke Leto's father, killed by a bull. Bufir Howitt, the Duke's old mentat kept in the employ of the baron with a poison and antidote security system, keeping him prisoner. Fade Rotha, the Na baron title given to the baron's heir apparent. Chani, a Fremen girl whom Paul has visions about, and in this section she shares with Paul a vision of her own, that she will have Paul's child. Hera, Jameis's wife, who is now in the service of Paul, and the Reverend Mother, Romalo, the Fremen Reverend Mother. And Talia will give us the summary of the section.
2: In this section, James's water is transferred to Paul. The tribe and Jessica observe the all-encompassing power of water in two ways. When Paul sheds a tear at James's funeral, the sietch calls it a gift and murmur that Paul has performed a sacred act, giving water to the dead. Secondly, when James's water, symbolically represented by metal water counting rings that each member carries is given to Paul, he asks Chaney to carry them for him. Secondly, when Jameis' water, symbolically represented by metal water counting rings that each member carries is given to Paul, he asks Chaney to carry them for him, a Fremen courtship ritual. Paul names Jessica as his enemy, as the act of even bearing him pushes him into a destiny both awesome and terrible. Back on Gaiety Prime, the Harkonnens have hatched a private plot to burnish the reputation of Feyd-Rautha during his 17th birthday. The Fenrings take note of the illusion of gaiety amidst a dilapidated lifestyle for the people outside the imperial court. The Baron floats the idea of Arrakis as a new Seleucus Secundus, a prison planet, in regards to taming but not killing the fierce Fremen. In the gladiator ring, the audience is expecting a drugged fight, which gives advantage to the Na Baron. Ratha and Hawat have devised to fake the drugged state of the opponent, instead choosing to give Ratha the upper hand By implanting a code word to hypnotically immobilize his opponent. As another feint within this, Fedratha, unknown even to Hawat, has further obfuscated the truth of the fight by switching his poisoned and non-poisoned blade. His victory sets off one of two hot-blooded frenzied parties in this section, and he's carried away by the crowd. Undeterred by various feints, the Fenrings leave, Determining that the lady will seduce the boy in order to reclaim genes for the Benny Gesserit breeding program that they believed lost with Paul Atreides. In the cavern, Jessica attempts to pass within during a Fremen ceremony to emerge as a reverend mother whose voice can speak multitudes. She drinks the water of life, which transports Jessica into a heightened drug state. She uses her Prana Bindu training to molecularly alter the water before it kills her thus changing it for the whole siege. She communes with the dying Reverend Mother, absorbs her and comforts the pre-born awareness of her unborn daughter, who unwittingly participated in the ceremony with her. Many things are revealed to Jessica. The history of the Fremen stretches back farther than is known off planet. She briefly gains access to the place within that the Reverend Mothers fear that only the, the Kwisatz hadarash may see and learns the source of the water of life it is the byproduct of a drowned sandworm using the changed water of life the rest of the fremen launch into an unrestrained spice orgy
1: okay um so i think maybe just jump into general impressions of the the section maybe Priya, you want to start
0: Yeah, I will admit that some parts of this uh, of these chapters that we're discussing today were kind of hard for me to read Um, only because like the writing is a little bit different or just struck me as a little different in this part. At some moments, it seems a bit slow. Um, And also like, I don't quite know what to make of the the spice orgy. (laughs) Like, I I think like on on a more serious note, um, it's very tricky to read to both write and to read. scenes that are of a psychedelic nature and I'm always uncertain whether I like it or not I feel like maybe it needs to like kind of sit in my brain for a while for me to quite like appreciate it if I'm going to so it's it's really hard for me to say but this section was a little bit more challenging of a read for me but that's not to say I didn't like it but um I mean it was interesting I guess if that makes sense
1: (laughs) yeah I'll definitely agree I think it was the one of the more challenging sections that we've read so far. I mean, like, um, the just the last chapter with the yeah the psychedelic you know whatever dream state, whatever, whatever the, the yeah whatever the water of life section, right? I think that that was that, that was pretty difficult to to read and understand. I really like the the kind of gladiator section. Um, I think now like whenever I see like a Baron chapter, I'm like more interested than a Paul chapter <laughs> or a Jessica chapter. I think like that the you know the kind of the politics behind everything is, is is the more interesting thing about this book to me and so like yeah like we he, the 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 whole section with like you know his his uh his changing his blades whatever it kind of reminded me of um uh, of like the Oberyn sections from from game of thrones or uh from from the uh, storm of swords actually um anyway the game of thrones series you know what i mean Anyway, <laughs> Overrun would use poison in the in in his in his fight, so that it reminded me of that, and I'm sure it was it was inspired by that as well. But anyway, that whole section I thought was was very interesting. I actually didn't catch until pre, until Talia's uh, summary that they had some that they had some like secret language in his weird speaking voice. Um, I guess I wasn't reading it carefully enough. Um, yeah, so I I just thought he was like talking slowly on purpose or i don't know what he was doing but
0: i thought i thought they were being annoying like that character in um foundation you know the character has a weird like exactly (laughs) right
1: right 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 and he he didn't i think we've seen this character before and he didn't speak like that before right so or did we or maybe he was only mentioned Uh, I, i remember the fen rings from earlier um but i don't remember if we ever like saw them directly maybe talia can can tell us
2: Right. Well, remember? that's sort of why I included in the definitions for these characters, like Lady Fenring was the one who left this, you know, the bumps on the leaf that Jessica finds in this conservatory. So yeah. we've seen their importance and their evidence, and now they're like characters that we are hanging out with for the first time.
1: But yeah, so we never saw them before, right? Or we never, we never like saw them in person, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, we never, now
2: you see yeah. some of my frustration with reading uh as a Moss Foundation, because I'm used to when a character is speaking in an unusual way that there's <sighs> meaning behind it that there is, right. you know, wheels within wheels that are spinning.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe you can, uh, yeah, illuminate us a little bit more about like wh- how that was like a coded language because I, I I didn't get that until I read your summary.
2: Oh well, they say it pretty clearly in the text that they, Do they? have a you know humming language she says like she hummed to him in their special language mm. um i do encourage you priya like in response to you saying with psychedelic scenes and this is you know far from the first one that's been attempted in text and it needs to sit with you if you're going to enjoy it i would encourage you to sit with this one uh, whether you're priya or a listener because uh, i really feel like this is where the book sort of really begins and really kicks into gear um Jessica, having this awareness to alter the molecules in the water of life is something that I remembered far more than like various banquets and basic fight maneuvers and ornithopters um, from, you know, earlier in the book. So this actually has stayed in my memory as a book that I read a while ago and was awaiting to, to arrive at. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely appreciated the parts um with Jessica and how she what she's making of her experience. Um, I think that was the better part of it for me. I think what happens kind of after, once said orgy portion begins, <laughs> is where it starts to kind of lose me because I I feel like it starts to get much more um I don't know, like it's almost like like the psychedelic nature of it peaks and then it kind of loses me especially when Paul and Cheney go into this back room and it's just like I'm trying to really figure out for sure what's happening between these characters if it's real if it's all drug-induced um so that's where it kind of loses me. But like, I did find the part with Jessica and how she's like, you know, dealing with these molecules. That part was very fascinating. Well, I will
2: say that is why I dedicated like the full paragraph to talking about this ceremony. And the last two words were, by the way, spice orgy. Uh, <laughs> right. yeah, do. FYI,
0: side note.
2: <laughs> well, I'm nothing if not a faithful reduplicator of the text. I couldn't skip it, but it's far from the most interesting part of this segment, I would agree.
0: I do find it interesting that like despite the fact that we know that it's an orgy it doesn't become like gratuitous there is more emphasis on conversation still like there is a dialogue between two characters that's intimate versus Mm -hmm. just like gratuitous uh, descriptions of an actual orgy which I don't feel we got like we know it's happening but Mm -hmm. we don't get like descriptions of that instead we get uh, what I'm sure is meant to be a very meaningful exchange between Cheney and Paul. But what kind of like, just irks me a little bit is that they're talking to each other, but under the influence of a drug. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's well, like, how way real way, is like, this?
2: Well, it sort of transcended that because Cheney's diet is so heavy in spice and spice itself is a drug. And, you know, Paul is, becoming acclimated to that as well so they may never have a discussion that's quote unquote sober you know um, ah
0: that's very interesting yeah, yeah. you're right mm-hmm. um and and speaking of that um speaking of paul still being in the process of acclimating to um just this environmental aspect of life on um Arrakis, it's um you know up until in the sections that we read prior to this um We had been focused a lot on how Paul is like the Fremen and how he knows their ways without having ever lived amongst them. And in this section, what I found interesting is that you see more emphasis on how he is other because there are certain things that they expect him to say and do, especially during like the the rituals around Jameis and his dead body and right, right. The water. And he doesn't, he doesn't automatically know what the right thing to do is per fremen custom. So that was kind of interesting to see, like once he's immersed in it, his intuition is not like kicking in as automatically as it had been up to that point. But as a counter to that, he does perform these
2: ceremonies. There's never a point in which he, fails to reform. There's just this reluctance or hesitation because you know, we end in this very dramatic fashion. There's been a challenge to honor. There's like an outsider on planet tension happening and it's being fought out between this Fremen Jameis and Paul, who's having like his first big boy fight. And it doesn't end with first blood as he's expecting. And he ends up, you know, killing a man for the first time. And that's where we end the section. So on this section, we open and we're not really sure, like, are we going to flash forward? Are we going to have this great betrayal moment? Like, what do we expect with our customs? And in fact, the Fremen are cool as a cucumber, very accustomed to this, talking about, you know, so his spirit will leave with the next moon. This is how his water is going to be distributed. This is like down to the decimal, how it will happen. And then we're all going to participate in this ritual. So it does show this something that's a lot more common to the Fremen but Paul does you know state that he's a friend of Jameis and that's what was required of him in that moment something that seems foreign to us yeah
1: I found it's also pretty interesting they like you know he's he's trying to like present like, to me like it seems like he's trying to present like this aura of like you know leadership because he thinks he's gonna you know he wants to become the leader mm-hmm. and everything but at the same time like when the at, when when he's directed to take the water of life. He's still like, ask his mom, like, is it okay? <laughs> yeah. You know, like uh, he still has like some, some like immature qualities around him around that. Um,
2: totally. Yeah. So I, I did want to ask both of you and myself and anyone what the book suggests about the qualities and what makes a good leader and specifically how does Paul embody or challenge those qualities Priya's already started by saying that he, you know, seems to have this lore around him that he knows their ways and then she's like well but he's we see him stumbling so what do you see in the ways that paul lives up to or defies those expectations of leadership
1: i mean to me it seems like the most important thing and for leadership in the in this group anyway is like kind of following tradition right and he's making he's not even making it happy he's like doing a good job at it you know like he you know he he I think he doesn't have any, uh, you know, prior knowledge of like these traditions, but, you know, he steps up and, you know, he says he's a friend of, of James. He, he drinks the water of life. He does, he, he's doing all the things that, um, that he's supposed to do. Uh, and I think like, to me, like the, the Fremen you know, respect that more than anything else, uh, in, in the leader, um, and not to mention, like, just like the pure strength of, you know, it's it's like following tradition, and also like the the fighting ability. He was able to best Jan or uh, James, right? Um, and so they're gonna respect that. But then if he didn't also do the the tradition stuff, he he probably wouldn't uh, be followed either.
2: It's you know because we see that in the Duke in Leto, that he stages this whole opposition to the way the Harkonnens waste water, and then in the next scene we see him like taking this goblet and smashing it and like letting everything fall on the floor. And again, we see this tension in good leadership because Leto is presented as a good leader, but seems to not consult anyone before that happens. And then Paul is also presented as this protagonist and then, you know, needs to be goaded on by Stilgar. who's like, my boy, you're delaying the ritual and he needs like the thumbs up from his mom. So they're both, you know, not, they're not in the same mold, even though they're both both presented as leaders so far.
0: I also find it interesting that um, certain breaks in tradition or some certain unexpected um, behaviors that Paul presents. Um, while at first they give the Fremen pause and they, they worry that he's not really uh, following the rituals properly. Um, there's also this uh, when he starts to cry instinctively over mm-hmm. Jameis's body they're very moved by that because it's it's not immediately apparent to paul but the act of shedding tears for the dead is not common in their culture but also seen as a gift and as a um a sign of respect that is not as readily given as you would expect in a normal um at a normal funeral so um yeah. i think that that kind of ingratiates more to them in an unexpected way, both to them and to him. And also I think that going back to what we were saying before about, um, Paul kind of stumbling through these rituals a bit this time I I totally agree with you because uh with you Talia that you pointed out that you know he's just killed a man um and I'm sure that that is kind of throwing his intuitions off as well because it's the first time in his life that he's actually taken a human life and while this custom is embedded in Fremen culture it's new to him regardless uh the experience of taking a life and also of following the rituals that come after uh taking someone's life in a way that's like socially acceptable in this culture um it kind of uh subverts a lot of um our more natural sensibilities around taking life and around death
2: Nice. Maya, the only thoughts that you two haven't already brought up, because I think you've had excellent points to this question about leadership, would be that Paul is presented more than just the protagonist, kind of the golden boy. Like the first hundred pages or so are all various people in the Duke's employ, you know, being astounded of this boy who looks like a boy and speaks like a man and has this tactical precision and you know studies these old tapes and learns how the fremen walk and he, you know he's being set up very clearly as if someone were supposed to root for but you know he does have these uh successes largely as a uh, direct result of violence and manipulation uh, despite paul's tears jamis was an obstacle to paul's leadership like he could not have emerged from that encounter as a leader without killing him and so he killed him and the religious implanting in the Fremen, you know, they can, Jessica and Paul can like roll their eyes at it, but they still use it. The manipulation of the Fremen has these direct beneficial results. It leads to their inclusion in this tribe and positions of status, and they both use it. And so those methods are morally ambiguous, I guess, at best. And I think that's something Herbert is doing intentionally. Uh, He's not saying that this is good or this is bad, but making us ask these questions in the same way that you pointed out rightfully, like, how can I straightforwardly analyze this conversation between Cheney and Paul? Look how it's happening. It's like in a drug infused orgy where both of them are remembering the past of a future and it's not straightforward. And I think that's, that's also sort of the point. Uh,
1: this one side note about like the, I think what Priya was going back a little bit, like she was talking about, like when he was, uh, when they were crying, like during the funeral, they got that for sure. They're going to mention about wasting water that time. I'm surprised they did. not
2: Well, Cheney does like sort of chastise him at the end because this section both begins and ends with Paul crying. <laughs> <laughs> if uh, everyone else noticed that, but it's crying over the dead because he's having this, vision of all these people that are going to die and change sort of like all right well let them at least have their life yet like you're crying about people who will die who haven't even
0: been born yet you know like that is sort of a waste of water i i I think that on the subject of water um there are things we learn about water that were entirely unexpected (laughs) in this section yeah we learn a lot in this section what do you learn yeah this one that they have like all this water mm-hmm. and it's kind of like sacred and they're not like allowed to touch it. <laughs> and like, it, it just made me really, I I, I don't know, it kind of confused me. Like, I, I know that this is just something that they are, like, of course it's sacred because it, it takes a lot to actually accumulate all this water. But at the same time, there's this dichotomy between the fact that people are people are preserving every droplet of water that escapes from their body. Meanwhile, there's all this water that they've gathered that they could be using instead of like drinking their own sweat and tears and blood, and uh, so it it just made me feel that like these this this uh, conservative attitude towards water is something that is more embedded in culture versus actual necessity. Um, there was a time when there was actual necessity, right? Um, when, before, I guess before they learned how to um, accumulate water in such quantities. But um, th- there is also like this like like if you take a real world example, like there could be the, the, you might have people who um, who are very frugal with money. And they continue to be that way, even once they have a lot of money, because old habits like die hard. And in this case, it's like this becomes so embedded in culture. Old habits die hard kind of sort of thing.
2: Something that you just reminded me of when you were speaking, Priya, is uh, have you seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon?
0: I can't remember now if I've seen that or not. It, it's like so familiar, but like I I, I don't I don't recall. <laughs> it's extraordinary um it's this uh
2: chinese uh movie it has Michelle Yeoh in it so i feel like a lot of people will have been rewatching after i i i know she's in hands. it
0: but i can't i feel like i've seen like I, I if i've seen it i probably saw it like more than 10 That's years okay. ago okay i can i can summarize it so you know it is this
2: you know action film and it takes place um in china in like over parts of the gobi desert and there's again this there's so much of this footage that's like dry punishing sun heat and then the warrior is like courting the love interest and he runs for a bath (laughs) i'm just thinking back on that like oh my god like not like a face wash bath in the middle of the desert and it reminded me of that when you're thinking about the sietch and all their water i will say though what makes you think they don't need it? Because they, do you remember what Stillgard tells Jessica it's for? We get two clues about what it's for in this section specifically. Uh, I would like you to elaborate on that. Yeah, I, um... I want you to guess, you or Dan. Like, what is this water? This like unbelievable stash of you know water and has sig- sacred significance and <laughs> it has wealth like terraforming to terraform Uh, the planet
1: yeah that was my guess as well
2: exactly with this we will change the face of arrakis that would make sense which takes more water than it takes to sustain you know a tribe that's thirsty it's terraforming an entire planet is their goal and another thing that we see it for is that we saw this quaint little like oh what does drowned mean at the banquet if you remember that i think it was the um the smuggler's Mm -hmm. daughter
1: yeah they talked about like the boat on the like when paul was talking about the the lakes on the on caladan
2: right yeah the um or the drowning fisherman like he was trying to do an anecdote about greed and they're like missing the point they're like wait a minute fisherman drowned like what do either of those words mean um but then we see jessica make this discovery and i don't even know if she's shared this with paul yet the fremen totally know what drowning is because they only got the water of life because they drowned a sandworm so like take into account what it means because a sandworm is something we've only seen as like a wild beast of the desert so they have the ability to capture isolate and then drown a sandworm and that's something that is obviously pretty hush hush
1: yeah and the the sandworms are like akin to like they call maker right so like they're not just like wild animals are drowning like the that i think there's a lot more significance to that i don't know what the significance is but it seems like But a lot just more like
2: sp- the sheer engineering feat that it would take to do this yeah it's definitely not something that happens in the wild you know there's no wild water of life so you're right it's more than a wild animal it's it's a maker i shouldn't have blasphemed shy my mistake <laughs>
0: I also get the sense that not all Fremen know about the water of life Um, mm. or, or am I, am I right or am I wrong? Because I feel like, I don't, I don't know, th- but it sounds right. <laughs> Cause I feel like, well, if everybody knew about the water of life, I'm sure not everyone would feel the need to preserve and save it Um, while they continue to kind of uh, like, you know, conserve every drop and act, you know, water is, is a scarcity. And if, everyone knew that it's not as scarce as they think it is, then perhaps there wouldn't be such conservative mindedness about um, saving water amongst everyone, right? Like not everyone's goals align um, or have uh, loftier goals than their own personal needs. So
2: well, I see what you're saying.
0: Like, I feel like the waters of life would get like rated pretty fast.
2: <laughs> but just, just a point of clarity, the water of life is specifically what comes out of a drowned sandworm. It's not the water that's in the sea edge.
0: Oh, that's what, okay. That's a good distinction to make. Yeah, so, so
2: the water of life is like the bile of a sandworm of a maker that has been drowned and becomes this narcotic drug that's fatal to someone who drinks it. And then someone who drinks it, like Jessica, who's able to change it, changes that water of life and makes it into this palatable narcotic drug. But. <laughs> Your so it stands. I just wanted to make sure we caught that before it went too okay. far.
0: No, no, no. That, yeah. That's a really good point to make. So um, if I'm understanding correctly, the sandworms are drowned in the waters of the sea itch, And then from that arises we don't know where. the water of life. We just okay. know the Fremen have the technology and the incentive
2: to be able to drown a sandworm. And imagine how much water that takes.
0: Okay. And the water,
2: right. <laughs> so, yeah, I do see your point that like, if, everyone had access to the knowledge of all this water, um, then maybe they wouldn't have the same goals. But I think it's said in the text, like Silgar says, do you know that there are people who are thirsty and they wouldn't have touched this water? So I think it is known to all Fremen. Or did he just mean amongst
0: those who know? Perhaps. (laughs) I just, I I guess maybe I am a cynic and don't believe in the goodness of all people.
2: (laughs) Maybe it's goodness, but think about the um the last episode. The title of it, Sp- "Spannensbogen," if that's the correct pronunciation. That self imposed delay between desire for a thing and the act of reaching out to grasp that thing, uh, when it's brought up, it says the fremen were supreme in that quality. Not specific fremen, but this is something that's like allowed their race to succeed. I think
0: mm-hmm. that would make sense.
2: And uh, maybe there's some critique on like painting the Fremen as this monolith, but that is I think how we're presented them, at least in this section, like, we joked a little bit earlier about adding the characters Caliph and Orlop, and if you're like a super big Dune fan, and you don't know who Caliph and Orlop are, and Jeff, let's not forget Jeff, um, that's fine, they're the sons of Jameis that Paul like inherits, And they're not really characters except something that shows the Fremen culture, shows how normal it is for guardianship to change hands through combat like this. Like they they accept him as their guardian, maybe because they think he's the prophet and this is like a big increase to their social status, but they're not really used as characters except to show that this is how Fremen culture is. So that's how I saw the Fremen restraint in not touching the water.
0: When you said Jeff, by the way, this is this is unrelated to the thought you just expressed when you said Jeff. I was reminded of how um, George R. R. Martin, he'll come up with like a million weird spellings and a million weird names. And then you'll have like one random character who's just like a really like uh, typical name. And it's not changed at all. i um, we'll always like catch you by surprise. It is Kaleff,
2: K-A-L-E-F-F and Jeff g-e-o-f-f so they do share a double f and we could argue that that's like a non-standard spelling perhaps especially in the 60s but i'm not familiar enough with <laughs> george R. R. martin to
0: comment further it just looked like jeffrey to me with the rey cut off of it
2: <laughs> that's that's jeff um but yeah that's you know a lot comes to the surface in in this section and spice orgy or not it's an interesting section
0: Uh, agreed agreed so there are many implications around loyalty in this section of the book and themes around that um the I, I guess as far as the Fremen are concerned with loyalty they've sort of accepted Paul into the fold and they accept him as almost like a messiah sort of figure and um in return i imagine they expect or have grown to almost uh feel entitled to paul's loyalty in turn as well so um that's what that's what i gathered on that theme from from that and also um, if we go back to the section with the slave, there's also uh themes of loyalty being presented there because he's main he he's he seems to be acting out of a sense of loyalty to the atreides um and uh even though he is a slave now um so that was also an interesting moment where that comes up.
1: I've had like uh, it was interesting like how she was like pretty disappointed <laughs> like when he chose her for a slave the, like but she's like, but I'm still young mostly oh James' wife (laughs) yeah uh so that like the yeah just like the the inner like the 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 kind of mechanical workings i mean to me like i got the sense like like this kind of stuff happens all the time you know and there's just like procedures in place that that happen you know like they have these ceremonies like they pass they pass on the wives and the and the children to the next person and it's just like it's just like a regular course of business for this group Um, but like, yeah, because they're all in the same tribe and they're all kind of working for the, for like, that's like the, the goal, like the, the number one priority is like the,
2: Oh, I get what you're saying. Like, even though she's scorned, she's not going to do anything. That's going to hurt like the tribe or his future attachments. Cause it's like, it's more important to be loved.
1: Right. Cause the tribe, the tribe is the most important part, right? Like that's the first priority for, for all of them. So like, she's annoyed. Yeah, she's yeah, annoyed that sure. she's like she's not she's not gonna be his wife or you know she, she's he's not taken for his wife.
2: Yeah, uh, and then only
1: a slave, but uh, yeah. We see uh, that
2: like, even like outside of the cavern, like a couple chapters ago, um, I believe it was Liet when the Duke is throwing his goblet on the floor. Liet has no shame at all. He like pours all that water inside his own suit. Like he's like my loyalty <laughs> to the fremen is so much more important than like my loyalty to the Duke, you know, or my loyalty to the emperor. He's employed by the emperor and he's in the court of the Duke. And that Fremen loyalty is the one that he chooses. And I'm sure it is complex and a political choice.
1: Was that loyalty though, or just more like hoarding, like we were talking about before. (laughs) I think Priya's analogy of like, you know, rich people, like still being cheap is is a good one. I mean, we understand like, I mean, I I think, (laughs) it yeah, there's like a greater, greater purpose there, but like, uh, yeah, the uh, kinds is a uh, thing before with more, to me, it seemed more hoarding <laughs> than uh, than loyalty.
2: Um, perhaps, perhaps. Yes. It is a real need, though. Liet dies because he doesn't have enough water. Yeah. Um, and he does choose his tribe uh, many other times. But I think it's interesting the way that this work chooses to explore loyalty instead of just like, dogged obedience because i feel like we'll see in some movies these like villains and protagonists who are up against each other and they'll have only the thinnest explanation as why it's like well i'm fighting for the huns i'm like okay but why like who cares really and i think the way that you talk about the fremen and paul having this cautious but intimate loyalty to each other is, is much more interesting it's not just you know dogged obedience that's moved on from but it's influenced by like well he knew how to wear his still suit and he participated in our ritual and even though he had to be advised he you know he still did the right thing and we obviously see this sort of weird shaky relationship between the duke and the emperor in which they were friends but he was troublesome to the emperor because of how powerful he was and the baron himself you know Having to stay on the right side of the emperor but still doing this dirty work for him more of the political side that you have been claiming to be enjoying dan
1: yeah yeah i'm interested to see like i mean i hope we get some more perspective from the actual emperor um besides just like the the front matter quotes that we have on on some of them i'd be interested to know like how like what his thought process is here like is is he just playing the two sides against each other to you know like strip them down at both of them
2: more than two that's a bunch of houses that the emperor yeah but for. at least the two
1: at least the two that we you know the Harkonens and the Artreides, right like this like mm-hmm. and, and like that that seems to be like arrakis is just, like the most important part because of the, the the most important world right uh because of the spice and so he's like kind of playing against each other to, and and you know they talk over and over again about how like how the baron harkonnens like uh, finances are all like depleted because of it, <laughs> and so like is that the emperor's plan all along is to, to maybe deplete- yeah See, de- wheels
2: within wheels
1: yeah uh, is, I mean maybe <laughs> no
2: one no one house should get too powerful, but I also think about like the Benny Jesuits because we haven't really talked about them as much this section but they have a series of pretty significant moves that sort of take like two lines and they aren't really lingered on but they're really powerful. Um, we've seen suggestions before that like Jessica is loathed by a lot of people as being a Bene Gesserit witch seeing that like oh she has a, her allegiance to someone else to the sisterhood but when we're first introduced to her she bore a boy like against the wishes she chose her duke so she betrayed or like chose a different loyalty but um we see the Bene Desert's angling again with uh, the Fenrings did either of you guys uh, catch up on that pick up on that during your your first read like their their plan I didn't
0: well, um, ho- hold on. I'm going to say one thing first, though, um, going back to the okay, yeah, the it. the loyalty thing, um, because Dan brought up how it's uh, so strange and um, business as usual for Jameis's wife to kind of transfer now to Paul to do with as he sees fit and how his children also become now Paul's responsibility, um, like the last comment that I have to make on loyalty in that regard is that Um, loyalty within this culture seems to be that you are loyal to the greater cause or the greater good or to your tribe, uh, versus to any individual person. Like the, the wife can easily just like, you know, she transfers from her husband to whom you would assume she would have been loyal during, during his lifetime to paul now and she has no qualms around it uh the children go to paul and they have no qualms around it and we find out that this transfer has happened before and now their loyalties lie with paul but in a sense they don't lie with paul because if someone were to kill paul then she would go on to the person who killed paul so it seems that overall at the end of the day the loyalty lies with the tribe um and i think that that's what I glean from that kind of weird transference of like his wife and kids are yours now. So, yeah. And, uh, going back to, uh, Lady Fenring now and their plan. Um, I think her plan is to seduce Fade Rotha. Yeah. That's so right. that, she can become pregnant with his child, and now, you know, at the end of that chapter, with that exchange, we find out that she's a Benny Jesuit, and they have this plan for that bloodline to continue. But I didn't quite understand why they want that bloodline to continue. Sure, sure. So we do know that she's a Benny Jesuit
2: because she left Jessica this note in their like um, encoded Benny Jesuit uh, language. Um, But we definitely see that a lot more prominently because she travels here with her husband, you know, with Count Fenring, and she's being hit on by this teenager. (laughs) You know, it's his 17th birthday and sort of disgusted by him saying like, no, you can't honor me. Absolutely not. And then they realize that it's tactically necessary. They see how popular and how beloved he is. And we know that Paul has already found out that Jessica is like the daughter of the Baron. So the Baron's bloodline is obviously one that the Bene Gesserit's really want. And they believe Paul dead. So next best, I mean, Bene Gesserit's got to have a plan B. So they see Rautha, and they're like, well, we'll just make that connection between a Bene Gesserit and that Harkonnen line. And so she makes her plan. And there's again, that question of loyalty because her own husband is, you know, he's like, well, I do have something to get over, but that's the plan. You know, that's just what's necessary. The breeding program is something that they've both chosen. Again, uh, this deeply personal concept that's shaped by a lot of d- these different factors.
0: You know, until you mentioned it just now, I had completely like, I guess it's because of the the space of time between our recordings perhaps but i had completely forgotten that jessica is the baron's daughter so that's a good refresher <laughs> like oh it was only a big big reveal and then i forgot it but yeah. <laughs> that would make sense why that bloodline blood is blood important precisely so that's why they need fed- got it okay that all makes a lot more sense now <laughs> i i want I want to take a moment to um discuss uh, something very ominous and unexpected and just very straightforward that Paul says, like it's kind of like harrowing where he um declares uh, that his mother is his enemy. and uh, she does not know it. but just by bearing him and raising him to be what he is, she is his enemy. And uh, interestingly, I think he has these thoughts shortly, if I remember correctly, shortly after she's having thoughts about warning Paul about fremen women because she notices some, like I guess, some chemistry between Cheney oh, why and is Paul he
2: singing a love song to that girl.
0: Right. Like it's just, she's, she seems like she's being like overprotective mom in that moment. Like she doesn't want anyone seducing her child. And then Paul at the end of that chapter goes, my mother is my enemy. Almost as if he had like read her thoughts (laughs) and like declares she is my enemy. But it seems actually given what he's expressing that it's completely unrelated to that. And um, has more to do with these visions that he has of of the what he keeps calling the jihad and um, what is to happen in his name, um, and uh, it's it's kind of I, I I didn't entirely know what to make of it because is he saying she is my enemy like in a manner of speaking like because. She, she, she is responsible for making me into what I am to become, or is he like, is he like setting her up as an enemy that he is going to now actively have to like, either separate himself from or work against? That's what I didn't know what to make of. I have
2: no answer, only theory, which could be wrong.
1: Go for it. I, I don't know. doesn't way more than
2: I have. <laughs> so, um. The Reverend Mother, the Gaia Helena Mohayim in the beginning does accuse Jessica of like being, I guess, greedy or like seeking self-aggrandizing and seeking to like, she's like, you thought you could bear the Kwisatz Haderach. Like it wasn't your job to have a boy. It was your job to have a girl. But you thought you could make the Messiah. Um, So that's what I believe is setting up jessica as someone who wants to make the messiah wants to make this quiz that's maybe she's having second thoughts about that but that was you know an ambition of hers and paul sees his potential to become that and seems absolutely terrified by it like you see he doesn't want to drink this water of life cheney is twice seen like smashing that bag down so he drinks a lot of it so jessica drinks a lot and pushing him into this destiny that he's like afraid of. So I saw them as being on opposite sides that she'll like push him into that and he doesn't desire it. But it's it's a funny passage and it definitely caught my attention when I read it too.
0: Like it it made me think like is it foreshadowing a rift that will come between Paul and Jessica in the future like up until now you saw him as kind of um deferring to her ultimately. Um, even though like he has his own intuitions about him, and ultimately he knows what to do in situations where she doesn't quite know what to do um we we saw him get the two of them further. it's implied than she would have gotten on her own um but at the same time now it's it, it makes me wonder if they're going to have a rift between them, uh whatever or it's speculation what manner in which that rift kind of takes hold. But um this is kind of the first time you really hear Paul expressing something so severe against his mother. Well, it's interesting that you talk
2: about the future because as I keep trying to tell Dan, I don't think he believes me. I don't think Dune is a spoilable book, at least not any more than reading it will spoil it. Like in the very beginning of this chapter, this gladiator chapter, it begins on his 17th birthday, Fade Ratha Harkonnen killed his 100th slave gladiator in the family games. And, you know, that's exactly what happens. And the way in which it happens is very interesting. But as we are in the ring and they're grappling and Fade Ratha is like, putting these darts into his slave's arm and then being shocked that like the slave is using the like metal in his arm as an extra shield to like you know bitch slap uh, Fader around a little bit there's never this fear that like oh maybe there'll be a dramatic upset and Fader will die like we know from the very beginning it tells us he killed the slave gladiator like that is the outcome and you know the way that that future happens is interesting so I think the things that they tell us are really just the things that do happen. So, I, I don't say that there's something that you can't see or can't predict um, in the future. So, trust your instincts. That's all I can say.
1: There's no big twists that we need to look out for.
2: <laughs> well, there are twists, but you guys forget them.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true.
2: <laughs> Lady Jessica's a Harkonnen twist.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was like, oh, right. I, I mean, the moment you mentioned it, I was like, oh, right like what I read two months ago (laughs) was actually the truth yeah exactly (laughs) but but also I I think that to some degree the the excerpts at the start of chapters like the the little bits from the princess Irulan um Mm -hmm. book and writings and stuff do predict or tell us what is to happen like we know from the very beginning that um the duke is going to die uh several chapters before it happens, perhaps like even from the beginning of the book, we know that he's going to die through betrayal. Um the, These are things that we know. But um I think now in the book, I, I get the sense that we're sort of in a bit of an uncharted terrain because now we are getting excerpts that tell us little bits and pieces about moi deep, but we don't really know what is, what exactly is to happen in Paul's fate. Like Cheney can say, Hey, I have a vision where I see that I have your child. But in my mind, there is still the question of, is her vision reliable? Um, I know that Paul also has, has had visions of Cheney and, and he finds her to be, the girl that he's seen in his visions but I guess maybe this is a part of me that wants to wants there to be a bit of suspense about the outcome of things like um maybe I want to believe that something will happen that prevents this vision from coming true I don't know but like it's it's a little bit exciting to think like will this vision come true or not I don't know
2: Yeah, but, you know, it does tell you some very basic things. Like if there's some quote from Muad'Dib that has not been spoken yet, you can pretty much tell, like, Paul's not going to die in the next chapter, you know? Yes, yes. Agreed, agreed. (laughs) Whether or not all these things will come to pass remains to be seen. Yes, that's what I meant.
1: He doesn't just see one future, right? Doesn't see, like, a bunch of potential futures?
2: Exactly. He's like singing when he's singing to Chaney. He's like, Oh, this is like a song from Gurney. And in like half of my futures, Gurney is alive and I get to see him again, but not all of them. So we don't really
0: know which, which future is going to happen. So basically Paul is like Dr. Strange (laughs) and he has, he's envisioned every possibility or many, many different possibilities. And, um, I, I I do like it goes back to like this this uh, this gripe that I had with uh, the premise of foundation, which is that like um the whole premise of foundation was that like psycho history predicts the future and predicts outcomes. But like my brain just wants to like resist that, you know, I guess I have like this thing where like I want prophecies to not come true to teach to to stick to that lesson that like you know um that we learn in 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 fantasy fantasy like as a genre that like prophecies are either self-fulfilling or they don't come true or they only come true because the person believed in it in the first place and put in motion these events closed loop time travel
2: (laughs) makes another win (laughs) I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna put a spoiler here for people who haven't read Foundation. So I'll put a note here about, about what Praja just said. Okay. Uh, anyway, the second history does predict the future, but it's only because the second foundation is making that future happen, right? So it's yeah. not like like it's it's written, but it's also like enforced by the second foundation. <laughs> so it's like it, it's not not exactly like uh, predict. It's not prophecy. It's not prophecy, right? It's like people manipulating. The future the way that they needed to be to get to the
2: it's manipulation that's and that's totally yeah. how i see the beny Jesuit in this series that they are supreme meddlers and they drag history and the present into the future that, that, that they choose
1: yeah wasn't there a discussion I, I don't know if we i think we discussed it earlier like all these like these rituals and whatever by the the fremen were kind of planted there but yeah, they I mean, were all planted
2: by, by the Benny Jezera and i'm not saying yeah identical to the second foundation. I think that's too simplistic a comparison, yeah. but yeah, like all of this is only possible because a long, long time ago, the Bene Gesserit seeded this through. And we also see some, you know, background on how old the Fremen are when Jessica communes with the Reverend mother, if we see the Zen Sunni, and I think this has been confirmed in the lore that that's like the Zen Buddhists and the Sunni Muslims. And, you know, has that history, but obviously changed over like millions of years and space travel and the hostility of the environment of Arrakis, which has, you know, imprinted in their religion a great deal, but it is like 10 million years. And it seems like the Bene Gesserit have been active for at least as long as that.
1: Yeah, I wonder what 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 ideas they actually planted versus like what kind of evolved from their original seed, right? The point is
2: that like, how can you tell the difference between uh, human prediction and prescience and like god level power just by influencing something over the course of ten million years? Like, if I had ten million years to carry out a plan, of course that would be like on the level of a god. Um, So even if it was just carried out from human actions. Lifetime after lifetime. Speaking, Speaking of the lore, actually, and you can cut this if this is too ridiculous, but my gosh, the lore about Dune is so deep. When Jameis died, there's this, you know, ritual and they intone Shai Hulud, who has ordained the faces for the moons that daily wane and in the end appear as bent and withered twigs. And I just had like a moment's curiosity, just a moment, about the moons on Arrakis, because Living on Earth, this is where this podcast is recorded. Um, the prominent effect of our moon's gravity is on our tidal ocean. So, without oceans, what's like the impact and the significance of moons on Arrakis? And I little did I know, I looked up the moons of Arrakis. People have like meticulously detailed the history the impact, the meaning, like I'm looking this up and finding the nitrogen composition of an arachane moon. So anything that you think to look up has so much history behind it.
1: Is that from just an extrapolation from this book or is it like from like future books maybe like that, probably that may or may not be canon?
2: Yeah, probably from future books, which are canon and future books, which are not canon. Yeah. Probably all cobbled together.
0: I, I think I got um, in the sections with the the Reverend Mother Romalo. I got um, I got a lot of that feeling of the history of the Fremen and the 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 ancient. It's it's like we've seen a Reverend Mother before, um, but this Reverend Mother is seems more connected to almost like an ancient wisdom and an ancient way of. Um, way of the Benny Jesuit that we we haven't seen up to this point. and mm-hmm. uh, I, I found I found descriptions of her very fascinating. um just just constant like emphasis on how old she is. um uh, which were a little bit humorous in moments, I thought, like she she looked like a collection of sticks draped in the black robe. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of um, There's a lot of uh, descriptions there that make her seem like she is like on the way out. (laughs) And um, it just makes you wonder like, like how long has she been around? Is she, has she lived like a normal human lifespan? Um, And I also found uh, the powers that she has to be way more um, way beyond what we've seen with the, the test of the the gom gom jabbar is that am i saying that right um the the test that paul is put through and like this test that jessica is put through seems even more like life and death um and uh these parts i enjoyed uh the fact that the reverend mother is so old and then she appears to jessica as a young girl um was also fascinating um so, yeah, there's there's a lot of like mysticism there uh, amongst the, the Fremen in relation to the Bene Chajuret that that becomes revealed in, in these scenes, which f- fascinated me.
2: And it should make us wonder if that's awaiting Jessica mm-hmm. now that she has inherited that. Is she going to have unusual powers? Is she going to have this unusual lifespan? We're not sure.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely strange. It's like she was uploading her consciousness into Jessica. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it, it felt very, Um, I mean, I wasn't expecting a scene like that. And it kind of came out of nowhere. <laughs> and um, too, I think, <laughs> right, exactly. Like she, for all her like Benny Jesuit training, she was not prepared for this and had to had to kind of you know figure it out as it was happening to her and she also mentioned it was happening to her way faster at a pace that that her training had not quite prepared her for yeah i
1: thought it was i mean the interesting part to me about that was that not only like was the um what was her name ramallah I should have mm-hmm. said it earlier. Uh, Over all those <laughs> memories uh, were uploaded, but like she had also inherited the memories, like and it's like had gone like all the way, you know, like through the history of the Fremen, right? So Jessica's not only getting her her memories, but like the entire memory of like the Fremen civilization. So like that's really going to expand her mind in the same way that Paul's mind was expanded when he was able to see like um the you know all all the timelines at once.
2: Exactly. It's not just another human's life. It's like so much of a civilization's experience yeah yeah well uploading consciousness is fun in science fiction and the moons may or not be canon uh one thing that is canon is the fremen's uncanny ability to measure water and if you see like when they're counting out the water that james will uh, is worth it goes down to like the 32nd thing of like a drachm it's tiny tiny little segments and you can see that superb accuracy in their water measurement and jessica is even noting that the walls of the meter how they're measuring held no trace of moisture the water flows off those walls without binding tension she saw a profound clue to fremen technology in the simple fact they were perfectionists so that is canon that should terrify the baron who thinks that they're, you know, only worthwhile as prisoners. And in the same way that I thought the trisolarin droplet should have terrified the earth, like the fact that they can just do that, that they can waste no water at all. What else could they do if they had their perfectionist, you know, aims on weapons development or something, it should terrify them.
1: Yeah, they're way more advanced than, like, I give them credit, like, you know, when the book started, I'd assume they're just sort of like a, like a tribal kind of, you know, like, um, people, you know, Mm -hmm. that were, that were just there taken over because they were outmatched, you know, technologically and Mm -hmm. uh, by, by these other people who just came and invaded them, right? So, but that's clearly not the case.
0: (laughs) Definitely. Another thing that kind of speaks to that is um, what I found unexpected in Paul's conversation with, uh, I've forgotten her name at the moment, Uh, Jameis' wife. Is it Mm Hara? She, uh, Paul asks her a question and she has a scientific answer to the question (laughs) that you would not expect her to have uh not not because she's a woman but because she is also simultaneously partaking in this very like um not very female friendly ritual of just you know becoming just giving herself uh, up as paul's servant because she was married to the man that paul killed um like that's not very you know advanced thinking as you would expect it but um or like forward thinking you know or like liber liberated thinking um but at the same time she seems to have this intimate knowledge as well of the science behind things so um these two seemed kind of uh unexpected to me uh these two realities of her and um yeah it 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 brings it, it makes you think that every fremen is very very much in tune with the the scientific nature of their existence
2: yeah dune is not science fiction it's ecological drama
0: boom <laughs> um I, I i did have one final thought uh that um this section left me with which is uh what impact does this have this this ritual that jessica went through have on her uh unborn child because um Uh, The Reverend Mother seems to recognize as the ritual is underway that Jessica is pregnant but had not mentioned it. And now that I guess she is sort of within her, she recognizes it. Um, But at the same time, she says she recognizes the gender of the of the child and says that a male child could not have survived this. So we do get the sense from that, that this this baby is going to be affected in some way by what what jessica has undergone and jessica herself says i did it my poor unformed dear little daughter i brought you into this universe and exposed your awareness to all its varieties without any defenses so it gives you the sense that like she's take this this baby very vulnerable has taken a full hit of something that she should not have have uh encountered and that is very interesting to see what impact that will have on the child once she is born
1: yeah i'd imagine like she would be born with like the ability like you know like the the same thing that we're talking about with with jessica like be able to like inherit all those memories of the entire tribe and so um she'll have like all this knowledge but like no training to like sort it out right because like it seems like the Bene Gesserit, even like Paul is like, you know, going to have this very rigorous training to be able to kind of harness all that, all that knowledge and all these powers. And she's, and then this, this baby can be born with these powers, but like no way to kind of harness them.
0: Yeah. And it makes you wonder, will these things be to her advantage or could they be made to be to her advantage or will they be detrimental to her?
1: Well, I suppose we will find out. Uh, in future chapters or maybe we'll see <laughs> or maybe future books for now thanks for listening uh, please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes and reading lists leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at com or on twitter at rehydrate pod and please join us next episode for season seven episode eight covering book three the prophet chapters one to six of dune by frank Herbert.